Happy Easter. I know, I know we just did this, but uh, I feel like I got left out. So, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, in just a second, I'm going to call out, he is risen. Uh, and then you, from wherever you are, you could be sitting at home uh, with your family, you could be watching this, uh, sitting on the toilet, uh, on your phone, that's the beauty of this moment. If you're Andrew Haas, I see you out there, Andrew, I know you're at home in your bathrobe. When you hear me declare, he is risen, you're going to shout back, he is risen indeed, all right, you ready? So on the count of three, here we go, one, two, three, he is risen, he is risen indeed, amen, amen, amen. What a day for us as a church, what a day. Uh, nations will rise and fall, pandemics will come and go, kings and kingdoms will be here one day and then they will be gone the next. But the one thing that we know that is true for all time is that Jesus Christ is alive, amen church? Amen, amen, amen. And in this season where it seems like things are out of control, what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Jesus Christ is indeed alive. He is indeed ruling and he is indeed reigning, that his church continues to grow. His church continues to thrive. Why? Because as the Apostle Paul says many times throughout the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Friends, Jesus is alive. And this morning we gather together as a church across many homes, many computer screens, many televisions to celebrate that fact. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to somebody, turn to your spouse, turn to your kids, turn to whoever's with you. It could be your cat or your dog. Give them a high five. Give them a, a COVID elbow and just say, friends, Jesus is alive. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Now let me just really quickly welcome all of you this morning. Uh, for those of you who are part of the West Village family, man, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you, I love you. Uh, this is like one of the strangest things I've ever done. I'm currently standing in the middle of an empty Cineplex Odeon yelling to nobody. I long for the day when we can be together and I can yell at you, where we can be together uh, again. And so I just, I just want to say to you, I miss you and I love you and I wish we could be together. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in online for the first time, uh, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. Since we've gone exclusively digital... Uh, what we've seen is that we've had people all across Canada, all across the world, actually, who've been tuning in. It's been pretty crazy. And so if you're new, if you're just watching this, if a friend of yours shared this on, uh, a friend of yours shared this on social media, then we just want to say uh, a big welcome to you. I can't tell you how amped I am right now. I mean, I say this all the time, but Easter is like the Super Bowl for the church. It's the Super Bowl for pastors. And on top of that, it's my birthday. <laughs> My birthday's on Easter. How amazing is that? On top of that, it's my wife's birthday. Yes, me and my wife have the same birthday, and it happens to be on Easter. So this is like the, pretty much the greatest day of the year for me, okay? Here's what we're going to do this morning. If you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Acts chapter 2. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the church. We're going to actually go back and hear the first Easter sermon that was ever preached. Uh, we're going to hear a sermon or a portion of a sermon that was preached by one of Jesus' closest disciples, a man by the name Peter. Uh, and it was this sermon that Peter preached that launched the church into its existence. Uh, at the time that Peter, Peter preached this sermon, there were roughly 120 or so followers of Jesus. Uh, and at the end, as you'll see, at the end of this sermon, uh, there were several thousand followers of Jesus. Uh, and what ended up happening was from at that point forward, the church started to explode and in a very short time took over most of the known world. And here's what I want you to know. Uh, it wasn't about Peter. It wasn't that Peter was such a great 
preacher. It wasn't, wasn't that Peter preached a great sermon. It was what Peter was preaching about. And, and what was it that he was preaching about? He's preaching about Jesus. He was preaching about the resurrection. So, so if you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 2. If not, the verses will be on the screen in front of me here. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the sermon that Peter preached. So starting in Acts chapter 2, picking up in verse 22, here's what Peter says. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. All right, let's just stop there for a second. Here, here's what I want you to do. Because Peter starts off, as every good preacher should start, he says, pay attention, uh, what I'm about to say is really important. So, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Pay attention. Uh, put your phone down, unless this, of course, is what you're watching the sermon on. Then keep your phone in your hand. Uh, maybe lock your dog up in the kennel. Put Pepe the pig or, uh, you know, I don't know, Paw Patrol or whatever it is that your kids are into. Give them enough sugar to put them in a coma so that they'll be distracted for a few minutes because you need to listen. And what Peter's saying is I want you to have your heart, your mind, your ears attuned to what I'm about to say because what I'm about to say is actually really, really important. And here's what I'd say to you this morning, that what you are about to hear is perhaps the most important thing you've ever heard in your entire life. So you need to listen. You need to pay attention. And then look at what Peter says next. It's beautiful. What's the first word of his sermon? Look at it, friends. Look at it. If you have your Bibles, put your pretty little eyes down on Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It's a good word. It's a great word on a day like today. Look at what he says. He says, Jesus. The first word of his sermon is Jesus. The most important word of the sermon is Jesus. What we are gathering together today to celebrate with billions of people around the world is Jesus. And then look at what he says about this man, Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now, here's what Peter says. He makes a very significant claim about who Jesus is. He says Jesus is not just a regular guy. He's not just a religious guru. He's not just some teacher, but he's been set apart by God. And this is made known to us by the miracles that he performed. This is made known to us by the way he lived his life, by his teachings. That there's something that separates or sets apart Jesus from everyone else who has ever lived in all of human history. Uh, one of the great misconceptions that we have as a culture when it comes to who Jesus is, is we lump him in amongst all the other religious gurus and teachers in our world. We, we think he's just one idea in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, so there's Gandhi, there's Buddha, there's Dr. Drew, there's Dr. Oz, there's Oprah, there's the Tiger King, and then there's Jesus. That's not what Peter's saying here. According to Peter, nothing could be further from the truth. According to Peter, there's something significant to Jesus and who he is. According to Peter, Jesus has actually been set apart by God. And in fact, if you were to just unpack what Peter's saying here even further, what you would see is that Peter's claiming that Jesus is God. If you go back and study the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, this is what you're going to see time and time and time again that Jesus claimed to be God. He, he said things like this. He said, I and the Father are one. I'm equal to God. He said, I have the power and authority to forgive sins. He demonstrated, and this is a little bit of what Peter's alluding to here when he talks about miracles and wonders and signs. He, he, he demonstrated that he has authority over, over nature. He spoke and the wind and the waves stopped. He touched somebody and they were healed from ailment or disease. What's my point? What's Peter's point? Jesus is a big deal. 
Jesus is actually God with skin on. Jesus is actually, is actually been sent by God, but he is indeed God. And so when he says, listen, he's saying, listen, because, because you've probably heard some things about Jesus that aren't true. You've probably believed some things about Jesus that just aren't true. He's not just a good advice uh, giver. He's not just a life coach. He's not just a, a religious guru or philosopher. He's indeed God. And then look at what Peter says next, going on to verse 23. He says, this man, talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God. And he says something very specific here. He's handed over to you by God's what? Deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Let's just stop there for a second. Peter uses a very specific word here to describe the way that God sees human history. He uses the word foreknowledge. Now, in a time like this, that word foreknowledge is such a beautiful, such a hopeful word. Uh, we live in a time where in this cultural moment, it just feels like things are so uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. In fact, many of us in, in this moment, and for good reason, live with a measure of fear, uh, with a measure of uncertainty. To some degree, some of us probably are struggling with, with deep feelings of anxiety to, to the point where we're, we're actually paralyzed. We're actually afraid to leave our house. We're afraid to touch our faces. We're afraid uh, to go to the grocery store. And I'm not suggesting that some of those things are, you know, we need to use wisdom. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying here. But, but, but what I'm saying is we have this sense that when we look into the future, there's so much uncertainty that we, we just get riddled with anxiety. Will I get sick? Will I be healthy? Will I die? Will my kids die? Will my parents die? Will I lose my job? You know, some of your parents, if you're anything like me and at our house, you're asking Am I going to have to homeschool my kids forever? Because it's not going to end well for anyone. There's uncertainty. That's my point. But what Peter's saying here is that God has foreknowledge. In other words, God has this ability to look down the quarter of time. And he actually knows the beginning from the end. That nothing happens that doesn't first pass through his hands. God's not taking a nap. He's not sleeping at the wheel. He didn't miss an email and forget to respond to it. And that's why we find ourselves in the place that we are in. Hear what Peter's saying here. You don't need to know what tomorrow brings. You just need to know and you need to trust the one who does know what tomorrow brings. Peter's saying you can trust God. He, he has foreknowledge. He has a plan. And you notice the word. He has a deliberate plan. But what Peter's saying here spans much greater than just this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. If you go back to the beginning of verse 23, look at what he says. He says, this man, again, talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God, by God's deliberate plan and his foreknowledge. You see, what Peter's doing here is he's in one sentence summarizing God's redemptive plan for all of human history. If you'll allow me just to take a step back and unpack for you the entirety of scripture in just a few thoughts. Uh, the Bible tells a story of human history that starts with God making the universe, speaking it into existence, making uh, humanity in his image and likeness with the sole intended purpose of him knowing us and us knowing him, being in a unified relationship. In fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis, it talks about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the garden, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, face to face, relationship, knowing each other, beautiful intimacy with God. 
Uh, but then the story of God goes on to describe Adam and Eve rebelling against God, sinning against God, walking away from God, turning their backs on God. And this, in a very real way, describes the cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. That the world is a broken place. It's a, it's a lost place. It's a place where, where humanity and God are not in unison. Where humanity and humanity is not in unison. Some of you would argue, uh, you know, we, we don't actually think, if you, if you go f- fast forward rather in, in Peter's sermon, he actually talks uh, about humanity. He uses the word wicked. He calls, he calls humanity wicked. Some of us would hear that word and we would just, we recoil against the idea of humanity being, being called wicked. Why? Uh, because we've been convinced that, you know, everybody gets a, a participation trophy and every snowfl- everyone is a snowflake, unique, one of a kind. And, and that this idea of, of brokenness or a person being sinful or broken, it's just so foreign to the way that we understand humanity in our, in our, in our modern mindset. But I think if we're honest and we just take a step back for a second and just, just look at what's happening in our world right now. A few weeks ago, we found out that there's a virus that poses a threat to all of us. And what's the first thing that we did? Not all of us, but many of us. Did we go knock on our neighbor's door and ask them how we could love, help, and serve them? No. We went to the grocery store. We bought as much toilet paper as we could. We bought as much hand sanitizer as we could. We made sure that we had as much stuff as we needed for our own survival because it was all about self-preservation in that moment. Uh, there's others of us who are, are looking at the, the world as it currently uh, is constituted and anyone who doesn't kind of live up to our uh, self-fabricated COVID rules of living gets publicly mocked and shamed. Right now, if you go on social media and you just look at the way that we interact with one another, if someone is seen out in public not doing what you think they should be doing, uh, they, get, they get shamed. We don't love people well. We don't love one another well. There's brokenness in our world. I mean, I think just the, the COVID reality itself paints a picture of how hopeless and helpless we are. I mean, just think about this. Uh, on the other side of the world... Uh, you know, there was a virus that, that got started that pretty much undid all of Western civilization. In one moment, if anything should demonstrate to us that we are hopeless and helpless and need something or someone outside of ourselves to save us, it should be the moment that we find ourselves. And as one of my friends said to me, when this is all said and done, churches should be packed Because people should have an overwhelming sense of their own frailty and their own need for God. And so the story of God says that God made us to know him, to love him. We rebelled against him. And then look at what Peter says here. He says that this man, Jesus, he was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. What does he mean? He means that that God gave us Jesus, that Jesus came to love us, Jesus came to serve us, Jesus came to save us. That when you look at our world, here's what we need. We we can't save ourselves. 
we can't do anything to, to make ourselves better than we are. We can't do anything to muster up the inner fortitude to save ourselves. We need something from outside of the system to come in and save us. And what, what Peter is saying here is that Jesus was God's plan for our salvation. Now, friends, if, if you're new to Christianity, if you're, if you're just hearing this maybe for the first time, I, I want you to hear this. This is, this is really important. This is, this is a big deal. It's actually quite profound. Every other worldview, every other religion, every other ideology, every other philosophy tells you that you have to do something to save yourself. In order to make yourself right with God, in order to make yourself right as a person, that it depends on you. You have to try harder. You have to do more. You know, many religions teach you have to pray five times a day, you know, facing a specific direction. You have to go to church. You have to not say certain things, say other things. You know, there's the old, the old adage, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date girls who do. That the way that we get to God is by cleaning ourselves up and then somehow we can make ourselves acceptable enough to God to save ourselves. But notice what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying the complete opposite of this. He's saying there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. It's beautiful. He's saying that God looked at you in your state of rebellion. He looked at you in your state of brokenness. And he recognized that you were helpless. He saw you in the condition that you're in. And he didn't say to you, hey... Clean yourself up, figure it out, get up here to where I am. He did the complete opposite. He said, I'm going to enter into the mess. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to stoop down and enter into the brokenness. And I'm going to save you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to reach out my hand and all you have to do is reach out your hand and I will pick you up out of the mud and mire. And to quote the psalmist, place your feet on the firm rock. It's a beautiful truth. It's such good news. What Peter is saying to us here is it's such good news, friends. I mean, some of us, if, if you're anything like me when I was growing up, you have this picture of God in your mind that he's sort of like this absentee landlord who's up in the sky. He's really not interested with me except for when the rent's due. He doesn't want a relationship with you. He doesn't want to know you. He's not interested in the in the day-to-day -day operation of your life. He's not interested in you as a person. And in fact, most of the time, he's frankly ticked off at you because you're not doing what he expected. Hear the words of Peter, friends. It's, he's saying the complete opposite of that. He's saying this Jesus was handed over to you. This Jesus was given to you. This Jesus came to save you. This Jesus came to love you. Why? Because... There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to save yourself. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to make yourself right with God. And so God doesn't leave you in that place, but he comes for you. So, so the beautiful reality of what Peter's saying here is it, it, it doesn't matter where you're at right now. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you don't know because it's not about you. What's the first word of the sermon? What's the best word of the sermon? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's about him. It's about his work. It's about what he's done. It's about his pursuit of you. You might have woken up this morning, rolled out of bed, 
You're sleeping off a hangover because apparently the government has deemed liquor stores as essential service. And so because you're in self-isolation, every night is a Friday night and you somehow stumbled upon this and you're tuning in and hearing this for the very first time and you've never given even one thought to God. The beauty of what Peter is telling us about Jesus is that it's not too late. And that if you would humble yourself in the same way that Jesus humbled himself, if you would reach up and take the hand that he is reaching down to hold out to save you, that you'd be saved. It's beautiful. And so Peter says God's deliberate plan was to send Jesus to save us. But then look at what he says next, second half of verse 23. So I'll go back and read the whole verse. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And then here's the second half. He says, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So Peter says God's plan was to send this man Jesus, this man who's been set apart, this man who was sent by God, this man who was indeed God to save us, to love us, to rescue us, to show us God's love, to show us his kindness, to redeem us, to restore us. And what did we do? How, how did we respond to God's kindness? Look at, what, look at what Peter says. He says we're so wicked, the wickedness in us is so great that we actually nailed Jesus to the cross. We had him killed. That, that's how lost we are. Uh, that's how broken we are. We actually killed the God who came to save us. Now just push pause here for a second. Uh, let's just do a mental exercise together. Take, take a step back, if you will. 20,000 foot view, look at what is taking place here. I want you to imagine for a second that you were looking at this from the outside and you were looking at God's plan to save humanity, God's sending of Jesus to save all of us. And this is how it ends. It ends with Jesus at the hands or with the help of wicked men being put to death by being nailed to the cross. Well, what would you think? You'd think God had lost, that his plan had failed. Just like right now, in this moment that we find ourselves in, many of us feel like God has lost, like he's taken his hand off the wheel. And in this moment, as Jesus breathes his last breath, what were the people asking? The people who believed that Jesus was, in, was the one in, who was indeed sent to save them. They, they were asking, God, where are you? What happened? But friends, don't forget what Peter says in the first half of verse 23, that, that God has a plan. He has a deliberate plan. God always has a plan. And look at the next verse. Look at verse 24. Look at, look at what Peter says. Verse 24. Look at the first three letters of verse 24. The, the, the word is but. In other words, the story's not over yet. It looked like the story was over, but the story has not ended. Look at what Peter writes. He says, but God raised him, being Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his, its hold on him. What's Peter saying? 
in the moment where it seemed like God had lost, in the moment where it seemed like darkness had won, where God had failed, God wasn't done. He had a plan. That God raised Jesus from the dead and in so doing demonstrates to us, demonstrates for us that that Jesus' claims to be God were actually true. We know that because of Jesus' resurrection, he indeed was set apart. He was not like any other man who ever lived, but he was the God-man, the one who came, who was sent by God to save and rescue us. And here's the other thing we see at the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the other thing that we see in the way that God works in and through our lives is that what was intended for evil, God used for good. That God is, is always using evil for the greatest good. He's always taking broken things and restoring them. He's always taking things that were intended to hurt, harm, and destroy and bringing rescue and restoration and redemption into them. And so here, here's the beautiful thing. Here's, here, for me, this is just one of those you know, mind-blow things where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe this is how good God is. So God sends Jesus. We kill Jesus, God raises Jesus from the dead. And then what does he do? He takes the thing that we intended for evil, the death of Jesus, and he, what? he does what? He uses it for the greatest good. The, the resurrection of Jesus takes the cross and uses the cross, turns the cross, conforms the cross, restores the cross into the greatest good. Because on the cross, what do we see? We see that, that Jesus was forsaken so that we could be restored to God. We see on the cross that Jesus took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. We see on the cross that that Jesus experienced full separation from God so that we could experience full restoration to God. And friends, hear this. This is beautiful. We see on the cross that God takes his enemies, those who crucified him, those who killed him, And he makes them his family. Isn't that good news? If you're you're a follower of Jesus, if if Jesus' death was your death, if you've received it as your death, if his resurrection is your resurrection, then friends, you're no longer enemies of God, but you're his, his family. You're the family of God. On the cross, Jesus took our place and he puts us in his place. Uh, but even more than that, even, even more beautiful, more rich than that is this reality that with the resurrection of Jesus, we, we have this hope, this promise, this, this wonderful truth that in the same way that Jesus died, we will die. But in the same way that Jesus rose, we too will one day rise. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when, when describing this event, the resurrection of Jesus, describing verse 24, what Peter's talking about here, he, he uses this language to describe the resurrection of Jesus. He calls it the first fruits, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. What, is, what does he mean when he says it's the first fruits? Well, first fruits is a, an agrarian term, a farming term, where a farmer would, would grow a crop, they would go out, they'd pull out the first fruits, they'd look at the first fruits, and they could tell what the rest of their crop was going to be like based on this first fruits. You could tell what the, the, the entire crop was going to be because of this one crop. And Peter's, or Paul rather, is using that just by way of analogy to say that for those of us who are in Christ, if, if we're followers of Jesus, that in the same way that he rose, we too will one day rise. 
which, which means this, friends. It's beautiful. It's good. This is good stuff. This is, this is amen stuff. This is shouted out in your living room kind of stuff that, that in the same way that Jesus rose, we too will rise, that, that after our death, we will be raised up to new life and we will be in the presence of Jesus. Isn't that good? That God takes that which was intended for evil and he uses it for the greatest good. He uses it for his glory. He uses it for his grace because he's all about redemption and restoration and making crooked things straight once again. We talk all the time around uh, West Village about a day coming where everything sad will come untrue and that's what Jesus does. He takes sad things and he makes them come untrue, even death, even death. And in a moment like the one we find ourselves in right now, this is such a powerful truth. This truth can bring us such great comfort and such great hope. We live in a world right now where it just feels, it feels like, God, where are you? We've said this already, but it's so relevant. God, where are you? We're unsure. We're uncertain. We don't know what's going on. The future, the future is not sure. It's not secure. And while I'm not going to stand here and pretend to tell you I know exactly what God's plan is and what he's intending to do and how he's intending to work and the ways in which he's going to uh, bring this thing, this evil moment and conform it to his goodness, because I don't know. Here's what I do know. That we can trust him. We can put our hope in him. We know that if this is what God did with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, surely this is what he will also do with our lives. For me personally, this, this, is, deep, this is deeply personal, like right now. Uh, three, three weeks ago today, many of you know this, but I'm sure there's many that don't. Uh, three weeks ago today, I found out that my, my father passed away suddenly. Uh, so uh, every spring break, my, my dad and my stepmom come out from Ontario to British Columbia to visit. And they spend the first week with my brother in Langley. They spend the second week uh, with me and my family here in Victoria. And it was the Saturday after the first week they'd been in Langley. And in their, uh, since they had come, the, the COVID stuff had really amplified. And so we were talking on the phone about whether uh, my dad and, and my stepmom should come visit uh, Victoria or they should go back. And in the end, we decided it was probably best for them to head back to Ontario. It was probably safer for them, safer just with everything that was going on. And so when we hung up the phone, our, our last words were, uh, you know, I said to my dad, I said, dad, uh, I love you. I mean, I'm going to miss you, but, you know, we'll see you in, in, in the end of summer. They come out spring break, end of summer every year, spend time with the grandkids. Hung up the phone. Next day, gathered with our church family in our living room, just like all of you did. The afternoon comes around and um, I'm, I'm watching basketball on my computer. Phone rings. My brother calls. I answer the phone. And he's crying. And he says, Chris, dad, dad died. I was just stunned. It's floored. Uh, I'll be honest, for about three days, I don't know if I had any emotion. I wasn't sure what to feel or what, what to think. It's hard. Dad was 63, healthy. I was on a walk with my, my youngest niece, my brother's uh, youngest daughter, Natalie. She's just about two years old. Walking on the side of the road, had a heart attack, died. 
The day that he passed away was eight weeks to the day that my mother-in-law also passed away, 63 years old, died of ovarian cancer. And I'll be honest, 2020, it sucked. I just want to redo. Reboot, try again. We got in our vehicle, went over to Langley, spent time with the family, took care of dad's body. Came back home, brought my stepmom with us. She, she was with us for a couple of weeks. The first Sunday after, sitting in the living room, watching the West Village gathering with all of you in our living room, and we're singing, and this song comes on. Same song, uh, one of the songs that we sang was the same song that was sung at uh, my wife's mother's funeral, and we're singing, and, and she's just sobbing, just sobbing. Put my hand on her. Kids are like, Mom, are you okay? And Kelly stands up. She looks at us, and she's just, she's just, uh, you know, snot, face, crying, like just ugly cry, but it's my wife, so it's a cute, ugly cry. <laughs> and uh, she, she looks at us, and she says, all I can think about, all I can think about is grandma and grandpa right now sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, experiencing Jesus, loving Jesus, being loved by Jesus. I'll be honest, like there's hard days for, for our family. It's a bumpy road. But that truth of the resurrection of Jesus is an anchor for our souls in these turbulent waters. That's what Peter's saying. That's what he's trying to proclaim to all of us. He's trying to say, he's saying, you need to pay attention to Jesus because Jesus is God and Jesus loves you and Jesus came for you and Jesus wants to save you and Jesus died for you and Jesus rose for you. And just as Jesus rose, you too can be with Jesus forever. You can experience the glory of the resurrection. You can experience the comfort of the resurrection. You can experience the the hope of the resurrection. This is what Easter is about. Happy Easter, West Village family. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive. He is alive. And he invites us. He wants us. He wants you to be with him. So what do we do? What, what, how do we respond? What is our response? And, and that is indeed the question that is asked. If you go to the end of the sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, here's what Peter writes, or here's what Luke writes, rather. Therefore, all of Israel, be assured of this. God made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's verse 36. Then verse 37, here's what he says. When the people heard this, they were what? They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Uh, can, I, can I ask you, is that you? Were you are, are you hearing this for the first time and, and there's something in you that your affections are being stirred? You're, you're cut to the heart. 
you're hearing this and there's something that's drawing you and you, you desperately long to believe this. You desperately long for this to be true. You've, you, maybe you've never heard this before. This is the first time you've ever heard anything like this, but there's something about this gospel of Jesus, this love of Jesus that is being proclaimed that is just drawing you in. That's, that's what it means to be cut to the heart. That's been my prayer. All this week as I'm, as I'm preparing to preach, is that we'd be cut to the heart, whether this is the first time or the the, the 500th time you've heard this, that the Spirit of God would stir our affections to want to love and know Jesus more. And here's my encouragement to you. If that's what you're feeling, friends, run towards Jesus. Run towards him. Because look at what happens next here. They were cut to the heart, and here's what they said. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That is the question, right? What shall we do? Now look at what Peter, Peter responds. Look at what he says. Picking up in verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Come back to that in just a second. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all all whom the Lord God will call. And then verse 40, he says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What's he mean when he says that? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Here's what he's saying. Peter's saying you can't trust this world for salvation. You can't find salvation in this world. You can't save yourself. You can't look to the world to save you. I mean, again, I, if, if anything that this moment that we find ourselves in has taught us is that, that we can't save ourselves. I mean, we, our minds are smart enough to invent cell phones to watch church on while we order food on them, eat them in our living room. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just, we can send people to the moon. We have all kinds of technological advancements, but all it takes is one microscopic bug to undo everything we think we know. We think, we think we can save ourselves, but we are so frail. And what Peter's saying is don't trust the wisdom of this generation. Don't trust our ability to save ourselves. Don't trust our ability to think. Don't trust our ability to to reason our way out or to moralize our way out or to invent our way out of our own problems. We can't do that. We just compound the problems. All technology does, all advancement does is make our our ability to be broken, our ability to sin, just that much more sophisticated. But he does give us the answer. What's the answer? Look at what he says back at the beginning of verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized. Uh, we hear that word repent and it's, it's loaded with religious baggage. But all that Peter means when he says that is, is to turn away from something and to turn towards something. The Greek word is metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. And so what Peter is saying is you need to turn away. Turn away from what? Turn away from yourselves and turn towards what? Well, look at what he marries the word repents to. Repent and be baptized. What is he saying? You need to turn away from yourself and you need to turn away or turn towards rather Jesus. Turn away from yourself and turn towards Jesus. Baptism is a picture of all that Jesus has done for us. The apostle Paul, when he describes baptism, he says just that, that it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That in the same way that Jesus lived and he died on the cross and he was buried in the grave and he was raised to new life, that our baptism is a picture of the work that Jesus has done for us. We, we come into the water, we are placed under the water, and we are raised to new life. That in the same way water cleanses us of our filth, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, it cleanses us of our sin. And in the same way that Jesus is buried in the tomb and then raised to new life, when we come up out of the baptismal waters, that is a picture of the transforming work that Jesus does in saving us. 
Uh, again, Peter, or Paul rather, when describing what takes place inside the human heart, the moment a person comes to faith in Jesus, he says, he says that you become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This new person emerges as a result of the saving work of Jesus. And so what is Peter saying? He's saying, turn from yourself and turn towards Jesus. To what? To be saved. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to experience all the hope of the resurrection, all the hope of Easter, then what do you need to do? You need to come to Jesus. You need to run towards Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to put your hope, your faith, your trust in Jesus. Because he and he alone has the power to save you. Some of you right now, you, you need to do this. You need to tell somebody, I want to follow Jesus. Maybe you need to send an email to us at the church, info at westvillagechurch.com. Maybe you're watching online, you don't know any Christians, and this is the first time you've ever heard this. Send us an email. We'll get in touch. We'll follow up. Maybe you need to comment below. Maybe you know somebody. Somebody shared this with you or invited you into this. You need to tell them, I want more information. I want to talk about this. I want to follow Jesus. But, but let me just say this. If you sense, if you sense that cutness to the heart, that conviction from within, that's the spirit of God wooing you, calling you. That's Jesus saying, I want you. Don't run from it. Run towards it. In fact, some of you need to do exactly what Peter says. You need to repent and then what? You need to be baptized. You need to come to this place where you're prepared to make a public declaration of your faith. You've been on the fringes. You've been on the edge for a long time. And you need to come forward and make a public declaration of your faith. Easter Sunday is a Sunday where Traditionally, all around the world, hundreds of thousands of people would be getting baptized today. I have no idea how we would baptize you in the COVID era. We would have to fill a, I don't know, a, a baby pool with Purell or something, bubble wrap all of us. I, I don't know what we would do. But I promise you this, if you want to get baptized, if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to get baptized, we will figure out a way to baptize you. You need to tell your community group leader, you need to tell Somebody in the church, you need to let us know and we'll help you figure out how to get baptized. But here's my point. Don't miss Peter's point. This demands a response. They ask the question, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, you gotta, you gotta run towards Jesus. He's inviting us to run towards Jesus. And so here's the invitation. Will you come to Jesus? Will you give your life to Jesus? Will you trust Jesus. And friends, for all of us, for, for every single one of us, the beauty of the resurrection, the beauty of the hope of Easter, the beauty of what Peter is proclaiming, the beauty of what Jesus has done for us is that we can have relationship with God. We can have forgiveness uh, from God. We can have relationship with God. We can have unity with God. And in the same way that Jesus rose, we can be resurrected to new life. We can have the hope that no matter what happens in this world, that no matter what happens to us, that no matter what what life throws at us, no matter what it is, even death itself, it has been defeated by Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. Happy Easter, West Village. This is good news. This is good, good news. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you came, that you served, that you gave your life for us, that you went to the cross, that you we're raised to new life and that 
in your resurrection, there is hope that no matter what we face, we have hope. Our world needs hope. We need hope. Don't you need hope, church? I need hope. Lord, help us to step into this. Help us to believe this. Help us to walk in light of this, to not be afraid, but to be filled with your hope. Friends, if you're out there, my invitation to you right now is to respond, to not wait, to not dismiss this, but to respond. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you gave yourself for us. Lord, as we sing in response to what you've done, may you stir our affections greatly for you. May we worship you with loud voices and full hearts because you are so, so good. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you, church.